0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are in season three, episode 32 or so, something like that. Uh, Surf and Sales. we have got a couple open spots left, three open spots left in November for session two. Session one is sold out. Check us out at surfandsales.com. I'm here with my good friend and partner, Richard Harris, and he's going to uh, give you the lowdown of who's helping us get this show and episode produced. Talk about yeah. our sponsors, Richard.
1: Yes, yeah, so our sponsors uh, this month are outreach.io. So please go to click.outreach.io forward slash surf for some kind of special that um, they won't tell us about. So now they, they do, <laughs> uh, but they have a special landing page. So we're happy to promote them because they're promoting us. Uh, we also want to thank uh, Scratchpad and Sendoso for sponsoring us, um, not only for the podcast, but also for the events. And uh, we look forward to... Continuing all these sponsorships and uh, working with them, so as people are going through these these uh, these new troubled times, right? Um, we want to make sure that that your team does have the things they need. So please support our sponsors uh, for all they do to the sales community. I'm going to give it back to Scott to introduce. Um, yes, the most elusive guest Scott's ever yes. had to hunt down. Yes, the
0: the <laughs> most difficult man to track down of all time. This is a podcast that one would argue is about six, seven years in the making. And there's a little bit of a funny story here. Our guest is Mark Smith, who uh, many of you know, he's a sales leader based in Utah, uh, has been an advisor to Lord knows how many companies. And uh, he recently went on sabbatical and packed up his whole life and moved uh, overseas. Welcome to the show, Mark. (laughs) He's. (laughs) Going guys he's <laughs> if you can't see his face right now he's a little bit proud and a little bit embarrassed tell everybody the story in your own words
2: the story i'm not even sure what
0: i know the story is i just i i think
2: uh i don't know I, I could remember it completely wrong but i i've just i've followed you for a long time i know your work and for years when people have asked me for um, for a certain type of advice i've just sort of sent them your way and then um i think i think we you know we shared some messages or whatnot and talked about talking and and then amy um she and i were talking one time and she had, she's like oh you i'm sure you talk to scott all the time I'm like no we've never talked
1: amy bullis, I, I did, by the way for people who yeah know.
2: yeah, amy bullis so. sorry and i i said no no we've never talked she's like what are you talking about you always recommend him and you always talk highly i'm like yeah, I just, you know, I think it's kind of funny that uh, that I've never spoken with them. And now it's it's kind of a game. It's because, like, I'm an avid golfer who's never seen Caddyshack. And I, I, I intend to never see it, you know, because it makes for a nice little, you know, cocktail party story or something. But, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I have weird little eccentricities, and one of them was I the thought that I would playfully dodge ever meeting you in person, Scott. But, you know.
0: Yes. I, I am like Mark's it. human form, Caddyshack. Richard, <laughs> yeah, that's what I am. You are not anymore. <laughs> not it's anymore. true. Not anymore. I've, I've, I've no, it's my... funny
2: because Caddyshack, I, 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 the movie's generally about like you know, I've seen, I've seen clips. Like I get it. I know what it is. Right.
1: I think, I think that might be the title. An avid golfer who refuses to see Caddyshack with Mark Smith. That might be the title of the episode. <laughs> I want
0: to name my new band. You got a you got a lot of interesting things that you've done and that you're doing right now. I, I got a few things that I want to I want to touch upon. The first thing I want to touch upon is you've had an interest in politics and yeah. dabbled a little bit. I remember reading about it. How do you think that the sales world and everything that you've done prepared you at all, if at all, uh to go that route and, and, and that interest in politics and running for office and all that kind of stuff?
2: Oh man, I'm not sure there's much correlation at all. Um, I think I grew up kind of being interested in it. Um, I studied politics in college and um, it's funny, I used, to, I used to be pretty passionately political and now I'm, um, I'm not really passionate about it at all. I think that's why I actually decided to run for office was that I um, over, over many years I've maybe this does relate to sales because when I started out in sales I thought there was one way to do it and um, and I ran into some trouble early on because I, I frankly wasn't being taught properly and I, I wasn't developing very well and uh, I was very rigid in things and uh, it wasn't until I really expanded my horizons in sales that I started to have a lot of success and I think the same was within my political thinking. I was very dogged and very, um, very dogmatic about things. And then I don't know when it was, but I just started to realize um, how much little interest I had in polarization and, and, uh, and um, ideology. And, and um, I, I just think there are so many solutions that are sitting right in front of us. And that's how I've always been in my career as well. It's, you know, Aside from doing something unethical, which is always a no, to me it's always been you know yes, yes if you know there's always a way to get something done. There's always a way to hit a revenue number. There's always a way to to grow something, to build something, to recruit. So there's always a way to get something done. And um, I think I decided I, I might want to jump into politics because I thought maybe there was room for somebody who was um, just wanted to just wanted to help. And um, it turns out maybe there isn't room for that. <laughs> <laughs> so so super so, successful.
1: So what are those? So just, I mean, because, you know, the, for me, the comparison of sales is, okay, this is objection handling, right? Like these are the objections. And, you know, you it's hard to, you know, you can try as hard as you might on the build versus buy, right? But at some point, if this, you know, if if they're just like, nope, we're smarter than you, you know, you kind of have to just close up and go to the next opportunity, right? Like that's, that is getting something done, which means means I'm not going to waste my time with you. What kind of things did you run into that were so disappointing? Like, I think it's a, you know, we don't talk about this stuff. So I'm, I want to dive in a little.
2: I'll tell you the most disappointing thing, and that is that I, um, I did it on a whim. So I, for those who don't know, I ran for governor of Utah. And one of the, there, there's a number of reasons why I did. One is that, um, is that it's, it's not that hard to actually get in a ballot and run. Um, and because I had enough of a, a presence and because there's certain ways you can get your message across that if you do a little bit of guerrilla marketing, you can, you can get out there pretty quickly. This is not like running for governor of California or New York. So I was able to sort of unannounced, go out and just, you know, get 20 something billboards. And, and, um, but it started, I was, I was getting my car serviced and I was like sitting in the, um, service center of Jaguar, Salt Lake city and, uh, th- thought I got an hour. Um, so I started to write my platform and I built a website and, and I launched it an hour later and then, uh, did, you know, put up 20 something digital billboards, but I did not declare any, any, um, any political affiliation. And what was, was really great was uh, almost universal support. I mean, I, 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 rarely, I rarely had anybody who messaged me and said, this is a stupid idea, this is dumb. In fact, most of them said, this is the best platform I've seen in a very long time. But partially as well, because I put a, little, a few things in there just for, for humor's sake. So I think I, it was relatable to people. Well, when I actually declared a political party, it's amazing how many of those same people immediately thought that I was an idiot who um, had the worst ideas they'd ever heard. That's what I think bothered me. It is, um, it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult to, in at least American politics, it's very difficult to be an independent. And if you declare a party even if you are, you know, one percent on that side versus the other side, in some places you got half of the people who instantly hate you and don't want to, don't even want to listen to what you have to say. I didn't think it was that polarized, but it turns out it is. But I have, I have hope. Um, I think there, there are a lot of opportunities for us to affect positive change for a large group of people. I think we have to take away. Um, sorry, that's a really bad wave. Saying it, but I think we need to uh, build the voice of the of the the rational, reasonable moderates. And By the way, I don't mean moderates like they have to be in the middle on every issue. I, I just mean moderate in that they don't have to have their way on everything. You know, you can champion some causes, you can you can relent on some others. I, I just don't understand why um, why it's so black and white right has, now.
0: Has this um, Has this experience changed your definition of what success means or what a top performer looks like or means at all? Or have you always had this kind of uh, approach and and vision of things? You mentioned kind of earlier in your career, you maybe weren't leading the same way as now. So I, I would imagine that it's evolved. And so I'm just wondering if, The definition of success and top performance has changed for you as well
2: yeah it really has that's probably one of the major ways that i've evolved my my first management job was on a lark honestly i I got lucky and was smart enough to jump at the right time and uh i wasn't a terribly good manager i was you know one of these um you know people would have thought i was a type a personality and and I was the guy that wanted to give Winston Churchill speeches at, or, you know, morning meetings and then talk about Glengarry. I mean, I was just like, you know, I was just the, the, I was just a caricature of what a sales manager should be. And I used to just think, you know, if you're not the best, you're the worst. And just this, this war of attrition to get to the, to the top. And, and, and now um, by now, I mean the last say 10 years of like really good success. Um, my definition of success is completely different. You know, I, I'll set goals and standards for what I want people to achieve at the company. And yeah, while there are those who, who really excel and go above quota and whatnot, really anybody who hits, the, hits what I need them to do, I, I treat the exact same way as I would treat anyone else. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I'll, I'll work with companies all the time where they all they want to talk about is A players, A players. They have a tough time defining what that is. But when I asked them, if we just, you know, say replace your bottom quartile with you know the skill of the middle of the middle person, would you do it? And they'd say, Oh my gosh, we'd be printing money if we did that. Yeah. So let's focus on developing people. Let's focus on um, on moving quartiles and leveling everyone up. Um, I, I focus a lot less on top producers than I ever than I ever have. Yeah, um yeah. I actually kind of ascribed it. I don't, I don't leave them alone, but um, I I do not spend a lot of my time trying to develop top producers.
1: I want to, I want to talk about that for a couple of minutes and then come back to some of this politics stuff too. Um, I had this conversation yesterday, specifically, you know, we always talk about the A, the B and the C players. Right. And, you know do you spend time with the Bs to get them to As and then for the Cs what do you do with the Cs right so my my question for you is i also think people don't know what to do with their A players so they try to leave them alone until it's until something blows up so how to your point you know you don't spend a ton of time with them but you don't leave them alone what's that about no no
2: well first i mean let me just like you know, for, for lack of, um, you know, we can talk about lots of different organizations, but, you know, let's say we've got a hundred sales reps. I I, I might call like the eight players, maybe the top, you know, six or eight, the top 10. Right. And those, those are those who are pretty unconsciously competent. Um, they are highly skilled on their own with their own, um, with their own general sales ability. And what I try to do is make sure there are processes, support how they sell. And I don't try to change them, but I try to make sure that, they, that we have processes that support what they do and make sure that they can just be let loose. Um, take a lot of things off their plate, just knock a lot of obstacles out of the way. I'm essentially just trying to free them up um, to do their best work and to, and to add zero stress to their plate what's whatsoever. In fact, I generally don't even try to add pressure to them uh, because they, they do it for themselves. Um, but th- those are, you know, those are a select few. If I talk about like, like let's call them the A- minus players or the, you know, the 8.2 players. Um, those I, I I try to break down on, it really depends on the company, but because some, some companies you know, every deal is a, is a transactional deal and so you have a lot of data to work with and you can really determine where your bands are between your a's and b's and c's other times it could depend on just the size of the deal and you can have somebody who is um wildly talented at prospecting doesn't close very well you know others that don't prospect very well that are incredible closers and i'm really trying to augment and try to fill in those gaps with them again with like, if there's anything we can do with, with sales operations Anything we can do with um, helping them to structure their day or to focus on developing some of the talents that they don't naturally have, that's really important. But then when we get, you know, I, I think the most interesting group, and, and when someone tells me, you know, asks me what do I do when I started a company, I think a lot of people say, oh, go find the top producer and go shadow them. I, I don't ascribe to that at all, actually. What I do is I, I, I tell people, here, here's a group they're probably you know the 70 80th percentile and they are they're skilled but they've developed their skills and they have a very specific process that allows them to be super dependable and super consistent so it's not just their skills their natural skills that have um, that have gotten them into a really solid you know upper middle class like always exceeding quota It's an adherence to a process because if I have, I'm most likely to recruit a lot of those people. If I'm right, then I I can go and and use those processes to replicate a lot of reps that might start out in the C or D range
1: because they're they're new. Yeah, so I wanna, so this is the part I really like um, and then I'm gonna move to the C players for a second. But You don't try to clone the person, you try to clone the process. Yeah. That's so much what's missed because like, Oh, who are they like? And it's almost like, well, can they follow the process? Now, sometimes the challenge and Mark, tell me if if you think I'm, if I'm on point is that those A people sometimes don't even know what their process is. Right. Because they don't stop to think about it. Right. So it's sometimes it's a little bit like having to, some cases you kind of know anyway, because we've been around long enough Um, in other cases, you know, it's, they couldn't even tell you, you know. So. so, so,
2: I'll I'll take that even a step further. I agree completely. And um, I, I tell people if you want to destroy your A players, go ask them to document their how oh, they yeah, do it. That's a great. So, one. so, if, so if you're on a golf, if you're on a golf course, and you're you know, uh, and you've got a money game going against the players much better than you, but the handicap system kind of evens you out. And they and, and you're halfway through the round and they're playing really well. And they just hit an amazing shot. They just hit a five-iron, 225 yards, three-yard right to left draw, lands softly on the green, spins back a little bit. If you want to win that match, I just did that yesterday.
1: I totally did that exactly.
2: I see that. But you don't you don't get in their head by by trying to to talk down to them. You don't you don't trash talk them. What you say is Lord Richard, that was that was an amazing shot. How, how do you how do you set yourself up for that shot? What are you thinking when you hit that shot? And I'm telling you, the next time they have to hit it, they're not hitting. It's it's just it's it's the truth. Yeah. There's something like as soon as we take unconscious success and we force consciousness upon it, it starts to doubt itself. And it's one of the worst things you can do. I will not let the eager go and 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 talk to the unconsciously successful people because not only are they not going to learn much from it, but they're probably going to mess them up. That's not because they're too special. It's because they aren't, they are working an unconscious process. There's elements by the way, you're a good leader. You can observe and you can say, listen, I don't want you to go talk to them, but I can tell you what they do. I can tell you generally what they do, but What I want them to do is I wanna go, I'm gonna say, I'm assuming you have above average talent and intelligence and work ethic. Here's 20 people, here's 30 people that started out the same way, above average talent and intelligence and work ethic, below average experience. We hired them, we taught them this process, they adhere to this process and virtually all of them have been successful. This is your roadmap. And if you happen to be unconsciously amazing, that's going to reveal itself anyway. All
1: right, I want to I want to flip it, and then I'll let Scott ask a question. But what do you do with the C players? Do you coach them on skills? Do you have to have a life conversation? What do you think?
2: So, with the C players, first thing I need to do is uh, it's partly selfish, but. This might sound like management spin, it, it, it isn't. I I have to, I have I have to help them see whether they have the work ethic and the determination to get better. So what I do is I I call it you know, I, I motivate them up or out. I don't I don't ride them. I'm not negative. What I do is I make sure that they have a tremendous amount of one on one development time with great coaches, and and we we micromanage. That's a horrible word, but what I mean is we just, we adhere to the process and we segment our time and we make sure that we focus on proper activities. If I sit with somebody for two, three straight days and I make phone calls with them, meaning I take a call, they take a call, I take a call, they take a call, and we do this over and over and they don't quit, they're going to be fine. If they quit, um, and by the way, this happens a lot, it's, it's because all we really did was just reveal that, that they don't um, they don't like what we're selling. They don't like our process. Um, They don't like what they're going to need to do to achieve that. So what I try to do is, is a bit of a fleshing out. Um, And and we do that, by the way, I've done that a lot in just in the initial onboarding and coaching Um, years, years ago, I was offering people money to quit. Um, I put them through a rigorous two, three weeks. And I'd be honest and say, you know, I, I see that you're struggling We go through this long conversation and, you know, offer them a couple thousand dollars to, to move on their way. Um, many, many took it and everything was fine. The ones who didn't, they were almost always successful because they'd look at you and say, you know, I don't, I don't want the money. I can do this. I'll follow the process. I will get better. And know, I, I, I'd like to think that I, I don't run operations that if somebody, you know, you should be able to give somebody 60 90 days to, to prove themselves in the process before you have to let them go. Um, but it's it's um, it's uncommon that somebody really applies themselves to what they're being taught that they can't make it. And if they can't, they usually feel justified that it's it's not you know they didn't get screwed. We just revealed through training and coaching and a lot of one-on-one uh, process engagement that, it just wasn't right fit, and they move on, and everything's fine, and we're fine, and life goes on.
0: Yeah, you uh, have been a VP of Sales or whatever the title is at all these places. Yeah, a bunch a bunch of different times. Now, the first time I think you were there for a little over four years, and then mm-hmm. subsequent roles, you lasted a little under two years all the time. What do you think? Uh-huh. What do you think changed? Was it the was it you that changed? Was it the market pressures and the working conditions? Is it the products? What do you think changed? Because that's very similar to sort of like the stereotypical, like, oh, the head of sales lasts, you know, 18 months type of thing. And I, I've yeah. been very outspoken about this, you know, for a long, long time, about, you know, how people in our profession are treated and the pressures of it. So I'm just curious, like, what, if anything changed?
2: Well, I, I can I can answer that now looking back because I have a lot of perspective on it. At the time, I honestly couldn't have told you, but looking back, I cut my teeth at a place that was very loyal to me. And um, I was loyal back to them, and we did amazing things. Um, I then left... Uh, on, on great terms. it was just time I just it was time for me to, to move on to something else and I went to another company that was phenomenal and truly appreciated everything that I, I, I had done for them. And uh, both of these companies were pri- privately owned and so I was essentially reporting directly to the you know the, to the owners. There were boards and whatnot, but we were printing money and life was fine. And then I think what I did is I chased some paychecks and uh, didn't quite understand what getting into a you know, VC bag, private equity back, whatever, you know, even a publicly traded um, type of scenario is. And um, I know you've talked a lot about this, but it's different. It's a different beast. And um, I'm not saying actually, I would do it differently because I don't, I don't really have a ton of regrets there, but um, it is, it's a thankless gig. I mean, I've gone in and, you um, multiple times skyrocketed you know revenue and yeah killed churn and um retained employees and
0: yeah done the things that you're supposed to do everything that's asked me
2: and then
1: and then um, shown the door
2: yeah because then on that because then what happens is on the back of that they say oh my gosh look at how much potential we have I, i i i'm like the I'm like the most honest sales leader there is. I mean, by the way, I think sales leaders are on. But what I mean is when someone says, hey, you just like, you know, quintupled sales last year. Can we do it again this year? I'll say, no, these are the reasons. Like fp loves me because I always get my numbers right. And we all we always laugh because then we're just told the number three times higher. But I'm very, very honest about where things go. And I'll tell them, you know, the first, this is what's going to happen the first year we're going to skyrocket. And um, and then after that we're gonna we're gonna level off a little bit. We're gonna put in some planned plateaus to make sure that these new processes are you know repeatable and dependable. And um, and then what happens is they they end up telling the board that you're gonna do an insane number. And it's 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 a very disturbing, um, very disturbing. Uh, feeling the first time yeah. somebody sits you in a room and, and tells you to your face that you've you know you've ruined the sales organization and you feel like you're taking crazy pills and it's it's really because what you found out is there's an internal plan and there's a board plan or there's an investor plan and they're not even remotely close to each other and um,
0: nor are they based so in just, the same reality that you're coming from. You're talking about how you're brutally honest with people like, no, we're not gonna quintuple sales again. Yeah. And you're coming from a place of reality. Yes. It's not sandbagging, it's just no. reality. <laughs> this, is what, this is what we will do, and here's the logic of why. Here's the data that informs me as yeah. to why. And yet- This is
2: why we shouldn't borrow more money than we need to. This yeah. is why we shouldn't go and hire 90 people this quarter um yeah you know i'm 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 kind of like you know cursed because i can do math in my head and so I, I can sit in meetings and quickly just look at spreadsheets and numbers and say that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense and in one company i remember sitting there and and just i actually had to get a calculator because i'm like I, I have to be crazy right now but the math in my head said that in my head said that we were gonna have to essentially like contact 80 of all american businesses you know, in a, in a four month period. And I'm like, what, in what, four what months, is this? I'm like, who came up with this? And it was a, it was a new product leader. They brought up a new product leader and yeah. he had all these aspirations. And I was like, man, the math doesn't make a lot
0: of sense. And, um, you, uh, you lived through the mortgage crash yeah. of 08 and that, yep. in that industry. Are there parallels that you see? Going through that to what's happening kind of yeah. right now in tech in the markets. Yeah, there's no,
2: there's no question. In fact, I, I, I gotta find it because I, I, wrote a letter to the editor of this San Diego Union Tribune back when I was in the mortgage industry, and I think the title of it was like, "If the experts can spend a week in my office," and I just listed like, guys, I, I'm a, I'm a nobody, but after our last hundred mortgage applications. And nobody has any savings, nobody has any equity, nobody has a credit score above 550. You know, there's no possible way this makes any sense. Can somebody explain to me, uh, because I'm told this is a, always gonna be a booming market, but this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. And I, I see that absolutely in um, a lot of these startups, all these tech businesses. Um, I actually met with a head of a VC. Dude, we're called me we're and, all uh, selling vaporware, in in some ways. But I mean, I got called in by a head of a VC a couple of years ago, and he said, you know, we've got forty something companies. We'd like to have you run one of them, and and I just half jokingly said, you know, so there's like what a ninety percent chance that I'll pick one that's gonna fail. And he just laughed, and he's like, ah, ninety five percent chance. But that's kind of how it is. I mean, there are if you if you if you People are like, I'm, I'm proud to, to announce to my network. I've just joined this company that has a $20 million Series B financing. I think statistically that means you just joined a company that has like a 90% chance of doing a massive layoff in six to nine months. So I mean, i not saying you shouldn't take the job, but raising series of financing is not what it used to be. Yeah. I mean, it means they're going to force an EP of sales. So Normal things don't make a lot of sense.
0: And if you don't agree to those things or you speak out about the fallacy of, of doing those things, they top you off under the guise yeah. of, well, Mark, uh, we're going to have to find somebody who's gone from 50 to 100 million before. That's the yeah. fancy <laughs> way of saying, we're going to hire somebody who just says yes to all the things that we think are possible. And they have drank all the Kool-Aid that you're unwilling to drink.
1: anymore. I think what they're hiring is they want to, they don't realize it, but they want to hire someone who will say yes to all the things you've been telling them to do all along, but they're just yeah. tired of hearing you say it. <laughs> like, that's yeah. what I think. I think they, because there's Scott, I mean, Scott, there've been many times where you've gone through this and the person yeah. comes in behind you and they end up, not doing what you suggested and it fails. Yes. Right? And yeah. then they finally realize that, oh, we should have done this. And, you know, because, you know, and it's, you know, often because the board says we should do that.
0: It's one of the most painful things that you can witness, by the way. I'm sure Mark has yeah. gone through this exact thing, but you, you kill yourself metaphorically for a few years. You build this thing up. It's worth, X amount, which is a big amount, you have theoretically, uh, you know, made seven figures plus for yourself. And then there's a parting of ways. Mm -hmm. And then you watch the next person or next two or three people come in to try to keep that growth going. And it doesn't happen. And it goes the opposite direction. And you sit on the sidelines while the wealth that you have sort of created for yourself disappears. Or dissipates or shrinks, and there's nothing you can fucking do about it. I,
1: I think you know, maybe this is what we should, see, you know, because none of us have these real jobs anymore. But it's like hey, <laughs> you don't. If you don't think I'm the right guy, what do you care if I recruit away your best players? Because they yeah. clearly don't think I'm the guy who's gotten them there. And then you know, just punch them in the face. But anyway, um, no, no, I mean, so so I had a,
2: it, I had a. I I'm mean, sure, we share war stories forever, but I, I'll, I'll just tell one. There's there's a company that. Um, we did phenomenal things. Honestly, we did phenomenal things. Company ran into an issue and I tried to flag it for several months just because they needed to know that we were going to come up up against it. And I had a plan to to get around it. That plan of course required, you know, really nice growth and not another exponential year. So I was, I was shown the door. Um, and, but, uh, my people, I I think people like working for me, so they a lot of people kept in touch over the next six months. And, and this is going to sound like an exaggeration, but it's it's not. Since after they let me go, in six months later, their sales were down by more than ninety percent. And that. They, that sound familiar,
0: Richard? How familiar yeah, yeah. does
2: that sound? Yes. When, so and when they when they when they canned the COO, and then the uh, the next sales leader, I think, quit the same day. I got a text message from multiple people saying that so-and-so the CEO walked into the all hands meeting with the entire company. And the first thing he said was, Does anyone else miss Mark Smith? Oof. And as much as I smiled and thought, that's it's nice still, little, little
0: it still hurts though. Yeah. It, it
2: hurts it actually hurts badly because I care yeah. deeply for those people. And what you didn't say, but I, I know this is true, is you you developed this this I hate the word brand, but you develop, develop this brand. So when you go someplace, great people want to go with you.
0: hundred yep. percent.
2: And you allow them to do so. And um, you, end up, you end up getting shown the door. You've helped build and also leaving behind people you care deeply about. And you pray that they find a way out in time or that it works out.
0: Yeah. And part of your motivation in building a brand and going to find the next thing is to find a safe landing place for these people yes. that, that you've cared so much about and you're sort of nurturing them along, them along in their Absolutely. career. I don't know about you, but that piece was the reason I started building my brand and started being active on LinkedIn was yeah. for recruiting purposes, both for myself. And so it was easier for me to help the folks that I cared about yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And so you, you sounds like you kind of got started the same way. You've got like 92,000 plus followers on LinkedIn right now. Two-part question for you. Yeah. At what point did you feel like it actually started to change your life in some kind of meaningful way? Business life, professional life, what have you, what, what size of, of, of network? And number two, because I struggle with this all the time. Why do you, why even keep going? Like what the fuck left is there left to, to do even? So what point in time in the growth did it change your life? And, and why, why do you keep going? I, I don't know if it
2: ever changed my, so the way I started was, was I one day was on LinkedIn and realized that you could do a post like a Facebook post. And I had just uh, gotten off a really bad um, sales experience with a software company i just posted about it. i didn't name anybody but i basically the post was like when the hell are sales people gonna learn when to shut up and just take the order because i had i had i had just gone through a process to purchase software and um they made me go through like four different levels of me i mean it's just ridiculous because they should have looked at and said oh this guy knows what he's talking about he's he's this is it anyways so i posted about that and then that went viral so my first ever post went to like two million hits and I realized it was just a nice cathartic way for me to, to write whenever I felt like it. So there wasn't really a purpose to it. It turned out um, when I started to meet people at companies I worked at that came and said, hey, I, I'm working here because of you. And I think, geez, do you work for me. And they said, oh no, I work on the product team. I work with, that was really interesting. I thought, man, that's, that's really cool. Um, but where do I go from here? Same place. I feel like posting something I do. It, i I right now you know you I'm sitting in a farmhouse in Wales my wife is reading a book on the couch and my son's up playing playing soccer with you know some kids um, in the field and that's my priority my it, my second priority when I have time other than hanging out with my family and, and having this great adventure is if I can use my my name and my influence to help out great people that I trust and that I love and then I do it. If I can help a young person get a raise, I take the call. If I can help um, a struggling CEO, you know, um, with some, some answers, I, I do. So I, there's no real agenda other than I keep posting because I have something to say or because I, you know, it allows me to stay connected with people. And if I really like them and I believe that they're trying to do the best for their employees or they're trying to get a leg up in their career, uh, yeah, I give them my calendar, and they said they set up a time. We talk. There's no agenda, unless it's Scott
1: because he won't talk. Yeah,
2: but now at this point, I guess you know, like
0: I'm in now. Though now he has We've to. Respond. We broke through. He talk. has to respond to every text <laughs> yeah. I send now.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I want to. I want to ask you a question about um, you know this VP of sales because I, I love what you said when you talk to the VC. Uh, you know, 95. percent So you sure. are looking to be a VP of sales, right? Uh, You know, part of the game, I think, and I've said this to people is, you know, it kind of depends if you need the job, number one. And two, sometimes you just want it to check the box so you can go get the next VP of sales gig. That being said, what are the things, if you were really going to go back and look at being a VP of sales somewhere, what would be the things you're looking for to tell you it's a good place to be, right? Like, how do you... You know, to the extent all these people who are listening who are sales reps or AEs or directors who want to just get promoted, right? Or, or want to be promoted, I should say. What advice do you have them to, or well, what kind of things tell you it, this one's worth the shot?
2: Oh man, that's a tough question um, because there's so many opportunities that I think mean, one of the first things, and you know, I say this to sales reps as well, just make sure that you, you choose something that matches your personality, what you like to sell, your sales cycle, your win cycle, because sales is not sales is not sales. There, there are major differences. And you can be more successful if you, if you run sales at a place that is in your wheelhouse. I also would try to reveal in the interview process whether there's a lot of quick wins because the new VP sales are going to have a lot of doubts about themselves and they're, they're going to be doubted by others. And so what you want to do is make sure that you there's two or three things that you can do um, right away to be successful. Those are usually back end things.
1: What are those so things I see a company,
2: in your mind? Oh, it can be the simplest thing. Like if, if they have the worst playbook on how to route leads and how to dial out and, and how to look at their data, that's um, that same VC He said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, why don't you just, when you want to go invest in a company, why don't you just pay me 50 grand to go in there? And I'll tell you what, how much, how much, you know, meat there is in the bone to exploit through process and and sales tools and and looking at data differently. And he laughed and said, yeah, you know, we don't want to know. We just want to place the money, right? We don't want to be told that it's not a good investment. But I, but I, I immediately just look, is there anything that I can do that doesn't require any soft skills? You know, doesn't require any script changes, doesn't require any management changes. Is there anything I can do from my computer with the RevOps person where we can make it mathematically almost guaranteed that everybody will do better? Those are the really nice wins because that also buys you time to build credibility with the team before you get into the soft stuff, before you assess management and make those changes if you have to, before you screw with scripts. Um, So I, I love it when there's just basic table stakes processes that aren't being properly done that we can go in and fix that builds quick wins build a ton of confidence and allows you then to have a much better basis for um for judging of talent that's the other thing if, if i look at a company that has a lot of data but they've had a consultant not not like a you guys consult i mean like you know a McKinsey guy look at it and they've they've just done a bunch of spreadsheet management a lot of times if you look at it with the right context and the right set of eyeballs, there's actually way more that could be done than they even know. Um, I, I look for scenarios where there isn't a level of highly entrenched management that is going to be in the way of progress. So as much as I love those loyal directors that started as reps and they busted their ass and got their director job after five, six years of being treated like shit by the founders, I... Um, <laughs>
0: We we all know gonna, them, right? But they're like, going to but they're going to be a little bit resistant or a little bit reluctant. Can be your greatest ally. Like I I've
2: worked with with some that are we became very close because, um. But I but I learned in the interview process they need me. This this person needs me to save them because they're about to break, and I and I know I can do that for them. There are others though that um, man, it, it's tough to get past that. So I think you want to make sure that that there's nothing, I don't like the word politics, but there's nothing political in the way that would keep you from making changes you need to make. Um, Other thing is, you know, if the company talks about runway a lot, even say, oh, our runway is three years. The fact that they know their runway and they talk about it that much usually lets me know that their runway is not that solid. And so I try to dig into the numbers a lot more because you know, growth growth costs money. And um, what you don't want is to have a great game plan for what you want to get accomplished and then find out that there's there's something hidden in the numbers that's going to take the runway from 32 months to seven months when you've got a creation multiple of, you know, 10. Because, and, and, you know, that's another situation I've been in. If, if when I say creation multiple, by the way, that's the number I use. That is essentially the, the cac of creating, you know, the, creating the account divided by the MRR of the account. So, you know, if it costs two thousand dollars to create an account and the MRR is five hundred bucks, that's four multiples. Well, there there are companies that have you know a multiple of say fifteen, which is not bad. It could be great in their industry, but they only have twelve months of cash. You're you're essentially growing your way into insolvency. And so it's really important to see whether growth will actually break that company's balance sheet. I mean, Richard, you asked about first VPSLs. I don't know if they're going
0: to get that deep into it, but. um, I think once you've done it three, four, five, you know, six times you learn through painful experiences to dive in and ask these kinds of questions. And so I think when there's people out there like us who have, actually done this exact thing a few times it's up upon us a little bit to you know put the word out there and speak it into existence so that person yeah. who's going after their first or second gig it's, it's a scary thing to think maybe
1: about. does a little ask. better it is. yeah it's scary yeah. to ask yeah
2: i mean uh, one i would just say just call me like <laughs> you know if, if you listen to this podcast and you you like what i'm saying just show me a message if you're about to take your first vp of sales role i can ask you five or six questions that might reveal whether or not I mean, one of them is if VP of sales at a really young startup, are their sales founder-led? Are they, you know, there's one company I I worked with where virtually all of the revenue in the first couple of years was founder-led or there there was a head of BD who was a highly connected person. All of their sales had come from that. They had no track record of building any marketing to generate leads. By the way, awesome company. I recommended the person go there but their conversations shifted into what they were going to be able to provide in the way of marketing support because honestly they had never done a sale off marketing it had always been off of networking so there's probably someone like me out there who can talk who can talk you through it and is happy to give you a half an hour hour of our time and and help you see some red flags but at some point I don't know I think you just gotta, <laughs> take, gotta, well yeah take the. I think you gotta take take one of the best one of the best opportunities you can come up with
0: and, and go for it because at some point we yes. all have to take the risk at the end of the day you're betting on yourself a little bit as well yep. you know you learn as much as you can to put yourself in as opportune position as possible but you're still gambling you know, and you are truly betting on yourself that, okay, with these conditions and under these odds, I believe that I can make this a success, whatever that means to you, a success for at least a particular period of time. That's a bet that you're placing, you know, and if you don't, you don't feel confident in that you, you should be saying no to that particular opportunity.
2: I think that's right. Yeah. you know, I'll have people
0: that say, Hey, I'm really nervous. I'm about to take this role.
2: I'm just very anxious. Can you walk me through it? And I'll say, all right, we've, we've talked before you have a long history of making good decisions in your personal and professional life. You've gone through four or five interviews. I think you've asked all all these great questions at this point. You know, if there's something hiding, there's something hiding, but I think you've done your diligence. Next thing is, um, have you stopped being good at what at what you've been doing so well for the last five, 10 years? No. Okay. Last thing is, have you stopped being willing to put in the work um, to those make are up two, those are two great
0: questions right there?
2: Well, because in the end, by the way, the answer is always I, I've been doing this well for 10 years. I'm still good at it. Good. How about your work ethic? No, I'm still willing to put in the work and take the job.
0: Be yeah. Fine. Yeah
2: there are others that say well sometimes i wonder whether you know i've got one more and well well maybe you shouldn't take the job then because if you get in there and you're wrong about your assessment of the company you're not willing to put the work in that's
1: sort yeah. of on you
0: that's why you go become a consultant or an advisor or go on yeah.
1: right
0: yeah didn't why you go people, to farms didn't and well pay
1: you to piss them off like that's the you know so so Mark oh we gotta gosh. we gotta wrap this up um, yeah you if, got it you know as much as Scott hates to he because he feels like you owe him like six hours of your life um, at least some tequila next time we hang out so <laughs>
0: that's right uh,
1: yeah so but uh, you know we always flip it to the end and you know that, see what questions you have for us but we quickly want to give a shout out to Outreach um, SindoSo and Scratchpad for sponsoring us we do appreciate it Mark any questions for us. You know what?
2: No, I I follow you guys pretty closely. Um I just appreciate what you do. Um there is there's a risk in, in a lot of the honesty that you see from from you guys and what I try to do as well and what others try to do. There's a risk that we we come across as these jaded people that you know got wronged and so we went off to be consultants, but that's it's really not what it is. We knowing what I know about you guys, we we care deeply about people. We've been around the block. We, we want people to be successful and do well. And that's why we're trying to allow people behind the curtain just a little bit. You should take these roles. You should take these risks, but maybe with some of our experienced help and and guidance, we can lessen some of the blow and it can be frankly,
1: just a little, little bit less dramatic.
2: That's right. When, uh, when you eventually do come up because it's
1: gonna happen. I think, I think we're all just being controversial for the sake of you know the algorithm.
0: <laughs> that's yeah. right, Richard. Yeah, that's yeah. us, right? Yeah, we're chasing, we're with chasing the,
1: with, with with the exception of me who's just angry because I'm yeah, the yeah. oldest guy in the
0: room. So. You big clout chaser. That's what you are. Yeah. Right, right. Thanks so much for spending some time with us, Mark.
1: Awesome, Mark. Thank you so, so much. We appreciate it. I'll talk to you guys again. All right, man. All right. Bye-bye. See ya.